EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash inside EMS. It's that time of the week once again to go inside EMS. I'm Chris, he's Kelly, and he's just back from the EMS World Tour. Here he is, my potato chip, Kelly Grace. Kelly, what's going on? It's, it's a wonderful day, bro, Fesser. <laughs> just got back from the Arkansas EMS conference. Uh, um, had a good time up there, and uh, um, I'm back at work, brother. I'm, I'm out there saving lives, stamping out disease and pestilence, and thwarting the reaper. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, you, <clears throat> okay, I'm just moderately delaying the Reaper for a few days. How about that? How's that? I'll give you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> so things going good. Arkansas State Conference. How was it? Arkansas was great. We uh, we had a had a chance to. Uh, Nancy and I both gave uh, gave some lectures up there that were well received, and had a chance to network and hang out and blow off some steam and all that kind of stuff. It looked like you combed your hair in some of those pictures. It, it once a month, whether I need it or not, I comb my hair. So that's pretty. Yeah, awesome, I, I, I dressed up in a suit and everything, man. You'd you be are, proud of me. You looked, you looked very cosmopolitan. I dressed for success. I did. Don't dress for the job you have. Dress for the job you want. The problem is, is it, it really sucks to go into a job interview dressed as Batman. Well, you know what? But if they hire <laughs> you, you know that that's the place you want to work. That's true. I'm Batman. So. You know, Kelly, I think that there's a lot of things to talk about, but I want to go ahead yeah. and focus on uh, this week. Nesemso, State EMS Director, sent out an, a document, a 27-page document, that really kind of outlined, uh, let's call it the state of EMS and uh, the EMS scope of practice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of great things in it. If you go to EMS 1, you can read the 27-page document, because right now they're in common period. But I think we're going to focus specifically on a couple parts of this document today, Kelly. Yeah. And the first part that I want to bring up is comes under comes under number seven, and you can find it at line six twenty eight. It's additional topics uh, under consideration, and basically, this is an expert panel reviewed several suggestions that have been submitted by the EMS community via online form. After participating in a brainstorming session with a nominal group process. The panel identified several priorities for moving forward. While this is not a comprehensive list of all elements the experts panel is currently reviewing, key points include, and you know, Kelly, I think that this is some of the things that we've talked about in past shows, uh, spinal um, spinal motion restriction uh, at the EMT level, mm-hmm. blood glucose monitoring, bronchodilators, CPAP, and epinephrine at the EMT level, mm-hmm. ultrasound at the paramedic level, needing criteria for licensure above paramedic, definitions for critical care, calculating drug doses, use of vials and syringes by EMTs, patient transport at the EMR level, IOs for adult, blood administration by paramedic, high flow nasal cannula, oral OTC meds, and capnography. 
So yeah. I, I think we take this step by step because we do want to talk about number eight, which really kind of caused a lot of challenges this week about skills that may be excluded. But first off, when we think about these additional topics under consideration and some of the additions, I think, within the scope of practice, especially for EMTs at the EMT level, I mean, what do you think? There's a lot to digest here, but from what I see, there's some really intriguing stuff here. And and I think that uh, a lot of these things, uh, in uh, if in wind up in the final version, if included in the in a national scope of practice, would be a real really big step forward at EMS. Um, you, you see some stuff in here that is you know state by state stuff, things like blood glucose monitoring and bronchodilators and CPAP and epinephrine and and spinal motion restriction uh, may be allowed in, in some states at the EMT level up and, and other places, uh, it may be limited or in service wide, it may be limited to, uh, paramedics only, but, um, there's some really, uh, some, some really intriguing topics that, that I think will drive the profession forward, you know, ultrasound, um, uh, IOs, blood administration by paramedics, uh, um, line 642 is high flow nasal cannula. So, so they're talking about, you know, actually formalizing apneic oxygenation that hopefully if you don't know what apneic oxygenation is, you look it up, uh, look up no DSAT by, uh, by Levitan and, um, it'll tell you all you need to know about a high flow nasal cannula oxygen, uh, and, and capnography and those sorts of things are, are things that are adopted, uh, by, uh, you know, most services, but, but not really codified at the, at the national practice level. One of the things that's held us back for so many years, Chris, and I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, is, is that our scope of practice and, and what we're allowed to do is, is so fractured and fragmented. Uh, and, and, and not only does it vary from state to state, although it has been getting better in recent years, but it sometimes varies from county to county. You can step over a geographic boundary and all of a sudden you go from paramedic to nothing um, because you haven't jumped through that particular county's hoops. Um, so there's a, there, there's some good stuff here. Uh, I'm not so sure about things like, um, um, you know, things like, uh, patient transport at the EMR level. Uh, I know some rural areas, uh, and, and frontier areas have some major challenges, but I do believe that, uh, that that's one, one, uh, um, dilution or, or that's one degradation of, of the scope that we don't need to delve into. Uh, I think people need to come up to the standard rather than lower the standard to, to, uh, meet their needs. Um, well, wait a minute. But, let's, uh, go, let's go ahead and touch on that then. So you're talking patient transport at the EMR level. Mm-hmm. So well, currently most places minimum, the minimum, uh, uh, training level to, to, to transport to work in the back of an ambulance is EMT. Uh, and I really think that needs to stay the way it is. Um, maybe allow it, uh, and, and most places will, uh, I know in Louisiana, I won't say most places, in Louisiana, an EMR can drive and assist in the back of the ambulance and work on scenes, and they can work in the back of the ambulance as long as they're working alongside an EMT back there. But they can't be the sole attendant during patient transport. I don't think it needs to stay that way. So um, let me give you. Let me pose this yeah. question to you. So you live in BFE, mm-hmm. and Nancy's outside. The world famous Nancy McGee is outside, working in the rock garden, and God forbid something happens and she's laying on the floor. Mm-hmm. 
a neighbor who's not very close to you sees it and calls an ambulance and the only mm-hmm. people that show up are those volunteers and they are at the EMR level. Yep. Do you now wait for a transport unit to come or do you allow them to at least put her in the ambulance, monitor her vital signs and get her as quickly as possible to definitive care? Um, at the current, uh, level of training for EMR, I, I think that's an iffy proposition. <clears throat> and, and I think a better response would, would rather than say, okay, we'll let the EMRs transport. I think a better response would be, um, let's see how we can go about, uh, funding and subsidizing education, uh, to make sure that EMT level training <clears throat> is available for those, those, uh, Agreed. Those, no, I'm, I'm uh, not arguing that with levels. You. But at least I want to be able to say, though, if we can put somebody in the back of an ambulance and get them to definitive care, I'd rather have that happen than someone laying on the ground for another 20 minutes until a transport. Me too. You me know too. What I mean? If so, I'm attacked, I'd rather have uh, – if I'm attacked, uh, I'd be happy with a stick or a rock rather than my bare fist, but I'd rather have a gun. We're not talking about what we'll, what we'll settle for. Uh, this is the document supposed to move us forward into the future. Um, we don't need another Band-Aid solution. What we need to do is solve the problem at getting EMS education to our, our rural and, and frontier communities. Um, and, and, you know, if they can spend currently National Registry's uh, EMR class is anywhere from 60 to 80 hours. If they can send, spend 60 to 80 hours on an EMR class, um, how can we go about getting them uh, an additional 100 to 150 hours uh, for a 200-hour-plus EMT class? That's what we need to be doing, not saying, okay, we'll, uh, we'll grant exceptions in this rule. That's just no, I, I, I agree with, Again, I agree with you 100%. But in, as those transitions happen, I think mm-hmm. that transporting to a hospital is, is more important than the certification level that's not on the scene. So I agree with you 100%. We should take these EMRs and we should move them to the basic level, figure out the best way to do that in the interim. Get my loved one to the hospital as quickly as you can, even if you can't treat them and do anything for them. All right, so let's go ahead and think about then some of the other things. Because you and I were talking a couple shows back. You know, we had our whiteboard, and we were trying to figure out the EMS system of the future. And we were talking about bringing up the level of EMT education. And some of these things in number seven really kind of talk about that. Oh, yeah. CPAP at the EMT level calculating drug dosages, use of vials and syringes by EMTs. Um, of course, they'd be able to do high-flow nasal cannula. They'd have to explain that. Capnography's on there mm-hmm. as well. Is there anything that you see on this list that, if with proper training, our EMT counterparts couldn't do? No, not really. Now, now line item 638, uh, calculating drug doses, use of vials and syringes by EMTs. Now, I don't know... If that is uh, if that is administration of medication, or the way it reads, it's assisting a paramedic with that sort of thing. Uh, hey, partner, get me such and such out. Draw up a dose of, um, and, and allowing them to handle those drug doses and, and 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 calculate those drug doses and pull up the the medication for administration by the paramedics. Uh, I wouldn't really have a problem with with you know the caveat being additional training. Um, you know the but we're already teaching these guys the five rights of drug administration. So if it is just simply assisting a paramedic 
with the with the psychomotor skill of of drawing up a medication um i don't see an issue with it i think it would uh, make the uh, emt a uh, uh, an even better trained set of hands on the scene um and it's really not all that difficult to do i mean we're already teaching them the five rights of drug administration so if if they're using that education appropriately they're already backstopping the paramedic on checking the appropriate dose and medication uh now all you got to do is teach them how to unsheath a needle and pierce a vial with it uh without poking themselves you know, if we trust them to use a lancet, we should be able to do that as well. If okay, we trust them to do check and inject uh, with epinephrine because they're not using EpiPens or they're too absurdly expensive, we should be able to trust them to do that. So, yeah, I, th- I think that uh, that would be great. And that's the key word I think you're saying is trust, because in a situation yeah. like that, when you got your head down and you're turning to somebody else to say, draw me up, whatever it is, you've got to make certain that that medication is drawn the right way. Well, here's and here's the, the the thing we've got in our in Louisiana scope of practice. I'll I'll I'm use my state as uh, as an example because it's something I'm intimately familiar with, and all our EMTs practice at this level. Um, they already do blood blood glucose monitoring. They already administer safely bronchodilators, CPAP, and epinephrine. Um, uh, they uh, <clears throat> um, they can put on the cardiac monitor they can uh put on and acquire a 12 lead ekg um they're just not trained to interpret the the results um but if i want my partner to to put on a cardiac monitor or hey man get me a 12 lead real quick they can do so um and and all that is is a non-issue it's not like uh, we've got emts just losing their minds uh drunk with their own authority in the state of louisiana doing these things so this is not a a new concept that that should be all that radical uh for adding to the emt scope of practice i just uh i think it would be uh, a welcome addition to bring emts nationwide up to that level all right, well, let's go ahead and switch gears then. I think yeah. we've kind of beat that. Number oh, eight, and here's the now. Yeah, number eight <laughs> is really the one that kind of got a lot of uh, you know, people's blood boiling this week. Comments received for exclusion from the practice model, and this doesn't mean that they're going to exclude them. This mm-hmm. just means that they want some feedback on them. Number one, of course, is endotracheal intubation, Yeah. PASG and mass pants, spinal immobilization, cricoid pressure, carotid massage, sub-Q epinephrine, demand valves, jaw thrust for trauma, and PEEP therapeutic. So yep. there was a lot of things on social media that people were just going crazy for. The, the number mm-hmm. one thing, of course, was endotracheal intubation. Yep. I don't know that in my 30 years I've ever put on a pair of mass pants uh, we we all know the upgrades in spinal immobilization. You, in your thirty the, years, you rarely put on a pair of pants. Well, no, I'm not the one who's in the beanbag <laughs> chair every show. You know, we talk about carotid pressure. Um, d- does that really, if they say that, and maybe we're, we're kind of from the old uh, school, and I don't know if I can speak for you, but if they say don't do uh, cricoid pressure anymore, I think I said carotid pressure before, but if yeah. we can't if we can't do cricoid pressure anymore, does that mean I'm not going to do it? You know, when you think about the BERT yeah. method, backward, upward, rightward pressure, I mean, that's gotten me through a lot of those tough intubations. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really cricoid pressure. That's that's laryngeal manipulation. You know, the BERT technique and and uh, ELM external laryngeal manipulation or, or bimanual laryngeal manipulation are all. You know, manipulation of the larynx to facilitate a, an endotracheal view, but uh, 
but cricoid pressure to limit gastric distension and to you know facilitate a better view for intubation uh, have has been proven to be pretty ineffective. Um, so maybe just uh, making sure that cricoid pressure is not taught and the appropriate method is, is oh, I like that. Uh, it's probably yeah. better yeah. better way to go about it. I guess you're right on that. Right, you know, and so there's just, a there's a I'm number. I'm just going to sit here and be quiet the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah, so, please do. Yeah, but so but let's <laughs> talk about that endotracheal intubation. Are you surprised yeah. that that was on the list? No, not in the slightest. Tell me I why. have been saying because I've been going around to, and this is something that, that I can't claim that I'm uh, that I'm in the vanguard in doing this. Brian Bledsoe said this years ago, uh, ever since some of the studies, uh, Henry Wang studies came out showing how uh, poorly we were, uh, ever since Henry Wang studies came out showing how poorly we performed at endotracheal intubation, um, this has been brewing. Uh, and there have been a number of advocates out there warning the EMS profession that if we don't get better at endotracheal intubation, um, it's going to get taken away from us. And it's plain and simple. And, and a lot of the physicians that formerly would support that are, are, have switched sides um, simply because they see the state of sorry airway management by EMS providers now. And they feel like, okay, if you can't do any better than that, uh, maybe you shouldn't have endotracheal intubation in your scope. Um, but the only thing we do well as an industry uh, is bitch and beat our chest and, and, uh, and uh, have uh, – um, unwarranted confidence in the procedure when uh, when actually we, we really suck at it. So is this um, something that will not make a difference in the field if it goes away? Oh no, I don't think so. I think uh, I think that endotracheal intubation uh, performed correctly uh, is life saving procedure. On the other hand, performed incorrectly, it is is a death sentence. So it's like many skills. A skill performed well can have some positive benefits. A skill performed poorly uh, can have no benefit or, or most likely cause harm. Um, and, and I think that's the issue here. It's not that endotracheal intubation isn't, isn't useful. It's that piss-poor endotracheal intubation isn't useful. And that's become the standard in EMS. Sad so to say, but it's true. There, there's so many places out there that do not, do not even track how well uh, they intubate um, and and have no mechanism for for periodic skills refreshers and training and, and no requirement for x number of live intubations per year and so and, and and that's testament to the to the disregard they have for adequate airway management uh, and now we're we're seeing the results of that it's going to get wind up, wind up getting taken away if we don't a speak up and b make a commitment to get better at the skill. Yeah, and I think that really goes back down to the organizational level. I mean, if you've got, you know, one of the things that we used to do um, is we had a, a system average for intubation success. Mm -hmm. And we had to keep the system average for intubation success at, you know, whatever it was, 92%. Yeah. But then the other thing was, if you fell below the system average, you automatically went into remediation. Yeah, and if the remediation didn't work, then you, your intubation skills were taken away. So one of the things that we've got to think about is we have a life-saving skill on mm -hmm. the exclusion list because the leaders in EMS are not managing this process 
for their workforce. And that's where the right. blame, that's where the blame goes. So mm-hmm. we now talk about endotracheal intubation and its possible exclusion because of poor leadership in our career field. Yep. You know, achieving competency and maintaining competency in endotracheal intubation is not an impossible task. Um, you know, in, in around circa 2000, I wrote a proposal for the Louisiana EMS Certification Commission to add RSI to the scope of practice for Louisiana paramedics, and it was, it was approved. Um, but in that, uh, I, had to, uh, I wrote a training program. I was trying to get all my ducks in a row and, and anticipate every objection to what I was proposing. So I wrote a training program said, we're going to spend an eight-hour day training our guys uh, in the the technique between R, uh, of RSI and DSI and, and all this kind of stuff. And then they're going to have an eight-hour day where they do nothing but intubate uh, and do bag mass ventilation at a high level. Uh, you know, in the back of a moving truck with a skills meter mannequin and making sure that, that, that they're not missing any, any ventilations and that so on and so forth. In the event that they can't get the patient tubed, they're going to have to be able to be experts at bag mass ventilation. Um, and I was about, looking at our success. What about adjunct airways? What about rescue well, yeah, airways? And, and yeah, we also, also had that in there. You had a plan A and a plan B and a plan C. Plan A was your, was your, your endotracheal intubation. Plan B was your rescue airway and plan C was cricothyrotomy. Um, but, uh, we, uh, in, in looking at our endotracheal intubation success rates at our service, and this is a small mom and pop ambulance service, but we were doing a lot of, of, of really good medicine. Um, and we were intubating a lot of people. Uh, our success rate service-wide was only like 83, 84%. I was like, oh, my God, that sucks. And then I got to delving deeper, and I realized that, that the result of that, aver- uh, that average was drugged down by two of our paramedics who had a less than 50% first pass rate uh, at endotracheal intubation. Two medics missed more than half their tubes. Uh, and, and without delving that deep into it, well, we'd have never known that our, our QI, uh, it, it highlighted a problem with our, uh, with our QI process. And it also highlighted a problem with two of our paramedics and I approached each of them and said, look, we notice you have a problem. You know, I, I probably said something like you couldn't hit water if you fell out of a boat uh, <laughs> and they were, uh, they were happy to, to get remediation in the skill. And we, we got a clinical contract with a local teaching hospital, um, and our insurance rates actually went down uh, uh, because uh, our, our insurer was impressed with the, with the fact that we were, we were making efforts to improve our care uh, and, and uh, improve the education of our people. Um, so if my little mom and pop service can do that, uh, your big agency with 20-something trucks and a and hundred or more employees can do the same. It's just a matter of doing the legwork uh, and, and being creative about how you go about getting those uh, agreements or, or where you can get those agreements. Uh, it's not um, easy, but neither is it impossible. And if we don't start making the commitment to get our people better at this and get them adequate skills practice, uh, rather than just wail and gnash our teeth and say, well, you know, they hardly ever tube in the ER anymore. They just put in LMAs. Um, then we're going to they? Up. Is that how they sound? Oh, yeah. Okay. Look, man, co-amps, uh, the co-amp standards uh, until fairly recently 
only required that paramedic students get five successful intubations to to graduate a program. That is absolutely shameful. Five is not even enough to show you how bad you suck. You know, a, a nurse anesthetist is not even considered minimally competent until they get a couple of hundred. An anesthesiologist needs 400 plus. Requiring only five is, is testament to uh, our disdain uh, for the skill of endotracheal intubation. And it's, it's pretty sad. Uh, I, had a, I had a paramedic partner who um, tubed uh, a patient on, uh, and did a good job of it uh, on his next to last clinical shift before he was given his own truck. And his hands were shaking like a leaf afterwards. And I said, Gary, you know, good job. And he said, thanks, that was my first tube. I said, wait, you, you graduated a COAMPS accredited paramedic program. How did you not get a, a tube on a human patient during that time? He said, well, we got a waiver. We did all ours on SimMan. And I said, you didn't do clinical time in an OR? He said, yeah, but all they did was put in LMAs. And I said, did you put in an LMAs? He said, well, no, nobody told me I had to. And and that's a testament to, to uh, the way we have screwed up our, our educational opportunities. You know, he could have been an expert at LMA placement at the very least, but no, he didn't even bother to do that because nobody told him he had to. So, um, you know, intubation right. is, is mm. one of those things that, that I think needs to stay, but if you don't do well at it and your agency does, uh, hasn't made the commitment to, uh, uh, to, getting their people better at it, then perhaps it does need to be taken away and you need, you don't need to play with sharp instruments or anything uh, more invasive than a King airway. Yeah. So individuals and organizations that wish to provide or input comments, there's a link on the article on EMS one and the national engagement period will conclude October 7, 2017 at 5 PM. If you're one of the people that are complaining about this document, you should be one that is giving your comment Yep. And please do it respectfully. I mean, here's individuals mm-hmm. that are giving you the opportunity. Let's not use our rhetoric and let's not use unprofessional behavior when we give comments, but really give your thoughts and really give your feelings. And uh, I think that this is important. Don't ever say that the career field doesn't, uh, you know, the career field is not uh, uh, is not respectful of your opinions. You're given yep. the opportunity to give your opinion. And I would say that uh, everybody should have the opportunity to uh, share their comments. But, yeah. you know, Kelly, this is one of those big clinical issues. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, it's a big clinical issue. Most of the, the things for uh, comments received for exclusion are things that need to go away. Um, but intubation probably needs to stay, uh, provided we can get better at it. And there's another one in there, uh, PEEP, uh, therapeutic PEEP. Uh, could could probably stand to stay as well, but the rest of them have proven uh, the test uh, have failed the test of time. But yeah, add your comments, uh, please. This is this is an opportunity that comes around too rarely uh, for you to actually be a steward of your profession and and have some input into where your profession goes in the future. And and the sad fact is is that most EMS providers don't take advantage of this opportunity. We would rather complain than participate. Well, here's your opportunity to participate. Uh, um, provide your comments uh, for or against and, and, and do what you can to help shape your profession. But that's what we think about it. We'd like to hear what you think about it. Anything that you think should be excluded from the new practice model or added, 
Drop us your comments, concerns, questions, and suggestions at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Sevalero, who really shouldn't be trusted with the laryngoscope, I'm Kelly Grayson. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.